Welcome to the American Council of Christian Churches podcast. Since 1941, Bible-believing churches holding to the great fundamental truths of the Word of God as held by the historic Christian Church have worked through the ACCC to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Through this podcast, you'll hear general and breakout sessions from our conventions and meetings and the Council's official resolutions and publications. Today's podcast is a message given by Dr. Stephen Pollock at the ACCC's 2022 Annual Convention at Faith Chapel in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Stephen is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania, and also serves as the clerk of the Free Presbyterian Church of North America and editor of their magazine, The Current. Dr. Pollock's message is from 2 Timothy 2, 20-22, titled, A Holy Minister is an Awful Weapon in the Hand of God. Thank you, Reverend Mook, for those words of, of welcome. I suppose in, in many ways I am sad to be here this morning. Uh, my intention initially was to come tomorrow. Uh, that was my plan. I would spend today uh, working in, in the church in Malvern this evening. And then, of course, Mrs. Hamilton's illness has uh, brought this about. Uh, so if you see your booklet, you look at the booklet, uh, the picture is me, the name is Mr. Hamilton. I think that works in both of our favours. Um, he's a little older than I am, so the picture works in his favour perhaps, maybe not. <laughs> and if you take notes and you go back in your notes in the future and see problems in what's said, well you can blame him. Um, so it perhaps works in both, uh, in both directions. But it is a serious, serious matter, again I've mentioned already the nature of Mrs Hamilton's illness. And I know our brother appreciates your prayers. He would like to have been here. He's looking forward to bringing the word. And so he feels that the Lord has provincially led and guided them in different ways. And in many ways, he testifies to God's grace in the entire situation. Uh, the way things came to light, he was due to travel to, uh, to another island just before his wife took unwell. And he reflects that if she had been unwell when he was away, Things could have turned out very differently. And even this past weekend, although she was very, very unwell and still is very unwell, it has certainly brought things about quickly regarding surgery and it's kind of forced the hands regarding treatment plans and options. And so decisions that they were going to make, those have been made for them in God's kind providences. And so please do keep them in prayer. Again, the need is very, very great. The work in the Walnut Port, the Lehigh Valley area of Pennsylvania, and needs prayers. It's a very difficult time. They're going to be confronted with a, a pastor who is going to have so many cares uh, regarding his own family. And so please do pray uh, for our brother and the work even going forward. Well, the text that I've been assigned is the text that he was assigned, uh, and that is 2 Timothy and the chapter 2. I want to read down from the verse number 14 of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Although the text in particular I'm going to focus upon are the words in the middle of verse number 21, where the man of God is a vessel unto honour, sanctified and meet for the master's use. But let's read from the verse number 14 of 2 Timothy chapter 2. May the Lord bless the public reading of his word. Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman, that he doth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. And their word will eat after the canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, knowing this, or having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. 
But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart, but foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strife. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, and you are taken captive by him at his will. Amen. May God encourage your hearts in the words today. Let's bow together, please, in a word of prayer once more, calling upon the Lord for his help at this time. Eternal God and Father, we come before thee in Christ's name, and we do again bring before your throne of grace the needs of our dear sister, Mrs. Hamilton, and her husband and the work of God there. O oh Lord, pouring grace upon grace, minister grace in this time of profound need, that they would know the peace of God that does indeed pass all understanding. They'd have that within their hearts and souls. And so bless them at this time, even bless our brother today, as he's mindful of this meeting and of what was to be his responsibility. We ask, O oh God, that you'd encourage his heart and bless our souls. You, you know you have brought this meeting about in your providence. That we're here today. We're here right now to consider your word. And we pray, O oh God, that each and every one of us would realize that this is a time not to waste, but to examine ourselves and to be encouraged in the things of God. Oh, give grace in the hearing and in the preaching of thy word, that in all things Christ would have the preeminence, that his name would be hallowed and glorified in our midst this morning. Encourage us, we ask, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. The title of this morning's message is drawn from a letter. Uh, of course, you'll know, I'm sure, the letter by the godly Reverend Robert Murray McShane. He was writing to another uh, pastor at the time and giving some words of counsel and direction. And he says this, Your own soul is your first and greatest care. Seek advance of personal holiness. It is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. And of course, that was true of McShane. McShane, in many ways, stands like Scotland's David Brainerd as a man of God who did great things in a short life, dying before their 30th birthday, but blessed of God to see many, many things accomplished for the glory of God. And in Dundee, McShane was well known as a man of great piety, of personal holiness. And so he continues in the letter, he says this, A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. It's one of those times when we must reflect upon the change of human language. You may well have sat at breakfast this morning and had an awful meal. And you realize that was an awful thing you just had to consume. I hope that's not the case. And we use the term in that regard. But of course, here in the older English and the, in the Scottish vernacular, even awful here speaks that you may use the term awesome. I say you may use, not culture today. It's been terribly misused in culture. But it is used by a godly man to recognize what God can do through a godly minister. The godly minister, an awful, an awesome weapon in the hand of God. McShane continues, a word spoken by you when your conscience is clear and your heart full of God's Spirit is worth 10,000 words spoken in unbelief and sin. A holy minister, an awful weapon in the hand of God. Now attached to that title, that quotation, is indeed the words of 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I draw your attention particularly so those words in verse number 21, a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use. 
And I think it is very appropriate to tie together McShane's letter with this text. I do think the two things complement themselves very, very well. But before we get into the meat, if you like, I thought to myself, you know, when you're a preacher and you come to read 2 Timothy, there may be a tendency to run quickly past verse number 21. It's a very sobering text. And perhaps I wonder in my mind if we were to survey a hundred ministers, I wonder what the responses would be as to this text when they read it. How would they respond in their hearts? Because I know, I know some of us are very, very sensitive. And some of us find ourselves laboring in small, struggling ministries. And some for many years have sought to labor faithfully as holy men and find themselves at a point where they have not known great external blessings upon the work. Now, they've got to be honest and say, well, I, I don't see a profound degree of fruitfulness. And it may well be there are some sensitive souls who would read this text perhaps going through McShane's Bible reading plan and read this text year upon year and have to reckon with the fact, perhaps I'm not a vessel unto honor. Perhaps I'm not sanctified and meet for the master's use. Perhaps I look at my ministry and I see so little external fruitfulness that maybe I'm not an awful weapon in God's hand. So I'm very conscious of that. I'm very mindful that Preaching this in a careless fashion may well not encourage, but wound and crush your soul today. I'm also mindful that there may be some who have a larger ministry. They may be here in person, or they may be outside the confines of this gathering, and they might come into a meeting like this, and they may look at their large church on the Lord's Day and say to themselves, ha, I'm an awful weapon in God's hands. I'm clearly sanctified and meet for the master's use. And they may come into this meeting and they may look around the room and wondering what's lurking in that man's heart. He's not knowing what I'm knowing. They may with pride look upon this text and misapply it and abuse it again to this damaging of their own hearts as well as the hearts of their brothers. You see, there are various ways I haven't tried to number this survey as to how many in this category or that category, but I think you get the idea that these things are real and they are true. It's also possible that there are some, and they have a, a very correct view of the matter of justification, and they may say to themselves, well, no one can be sanctified perfectly. We understand that sin remains and therefore, what's in view here is it's not about personal holiness. It's about our standing in Christ. That the sanctified aspect here reflects our legal standing in Christ. Now, I'm going to say more about that later on. But it's not what this text is talking about. And so in your accurate understanding of your legal standing and that you are sanctified in Christ already, you should not remove the weight of this text, which clearly does address the matter of your personal responsibility to be holy men of God. It's very clear. Purge yourselves. If I can paraphrase verse number 21. Flee also youthful lust, verse number 22. Follow. These are, again, imperatives with regards to the obligation of the man of God. And so do not excuse yourselves by resting upon truth to then exonerate yourselves from a lack of pursuing personal godliness. And so those are the ways that this may be misused. And yet each of them have some element of truth, don't they? It may well be the case that sin has hindered God's blessing upon our ministry. It may be true that God has blessed someone's ministry because they have been faithful in serving God. And it is certainly true that our holiness rests upon our standing in Christ. You see how difficult it is to be a pastor? 
I'm serious, isn't it? When you have texts like this and you realize how this text is going in different directions and be misapplied, you need to pray for your soul today. I need to pray for my soul that we be a workman rightly dividing the word of truth. And I certainly seek your prayers to that end even this morning. And so what you see here, and I think what really encourages us, is what God is able to do with the holy minister in his hand. When I reflected upon the text again, I just couldn't help but focus upon the idea, meet for the master's use. It's what the Lord is doing through us that brings about fruitfulness. That's the great encouragement. But before we get there, we've got to deal with the issue of the holy man of God. And that's really the two things. Very, very simple this morning. So Wednesday morning, 9.30, very, very straightforward. I want to think about the holy man of God and then the mighty work of God. Okay, very straightforward, very simple. And let's begin then with the holy man of God. For clearly we are looking at someone here who is a vessel unto honor. And I do believe that Paul personalized this for Timothy. He's general, verse 21, if a man therefore, and then personal, flee also youthful lusts. So he addresses Timothy personally from the general. And as he does so, first of all, he underlines the importance of holiness in God's work. God does use holy men of God. And Paul highlights the importance of holiness by taking a metaphor from the household. He refers to these vessels of honor. And you go back to verse number 20. Note, please. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, some to honor and some to dishonor. The household. Vessels. I remember my grandmother, uh, again, living in a really very humble home in a little town called Palomina in Northern Ireland, a wonderful place. Go and visit it sometime. It's really the center of the universe. It actually is, because in the, in the old Gaelic, it means middle town. Uh, Balamina means middle town. It's right in the center of the universe, a great place to go and visit sometime. But anyway, my grandmother, uh, again, living there, she had a humble home, a row home, in the middle of the, the industrial area of the town. But she had vessels unto honor. When it came to, to Christmas or family holidays, she brought out the finest china, Royal Dalton. You know, a really beautiful set of china, and that, that came out on that fine occasion. That's the idea here, the, you know, the, the silver came out. You call it flatware, we call it cutlery. You know, the silverware came out, and we used the, the knives and the forks. These were vessels unto honor. But there were also things that were uh, under, the, the little room in the back called the scullery. I don't know if you've ever heard of scullery. There's a little washroom in the back of the home, and in the, in the, scull, the, the scullery under the sink, well, they were vessels unto dishonor. They, they were used for things that you wouldn't like to name in a pulpit. There was all manner of brushes and pots and pans, and they were, they were kept out of sight and out of way. But what the most important thing was, don't mix them up. You don't want to use the one thing for the wrong purpose. That's, that's Paul's picture here. That's what he's encouraging us to think about. And he's making the point that it matters that you're a vessel unto honor for the Lord's use. In the context, he's dealing with the issue of apostates in the church. So you go go right back. I read the, the previous verses deliberately. And you go back to those who were subverting the truth. And then verse number 17, there are those whose word doth eat as a canker of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred. Erred in a very significant fashion. You can imagine the discouragement. The resurrection of Christ has passed, and what's going to happen next, and what's happened to me here, here. And they were, again, discouraging the people of God, and they were indeed overthrowing the faith of some. The danger of false teachers in the church. You see, they're in the church. Paul's making the point there were some of these individuals who were in the church and they were vessels unto dishonor. They weren't for God's use. But rather, Timothy, you make sure you're a vessel unto honor because holiness really matters. And so he highlights in the word that he uses, verse number 21, a vessel unto honor sanctified. And he's using that regular word grouping for holiness that's used in the New Testament 
and it has as its core idea the principle of being set apart. And so the verses on to honor, they've been set apart by God. They've got a, a special place, if you like, and particular roles to fulfill. I think the idea primarily here is one who is set apart unto God's use. Can you think of the utensils used in the tabernacle? Going back to the wilderness, and there were vessels that were sanctified. They were set apart. They were not to be used for mundane tasks. They were to be used in the Lord's use, sanctified. Or do you think of the priests? you think of the sons of Aaron? And you think of all the procedures whereby they were set apart? The washing. And then you have, what else do you have? You have the blood applied on the ears and the thumbs and the toes. You have the oil applied. You have the linen garments. All of those things to enable Aaron's sons to be sanctified. Meet for the master's use. And I think that's the idea that Paul is drawing from here. But of course, when you come to the New Testament, I don't believe any of you men in your ordination were daubed with blood and oil and such things. But why not? If it's good enough for Aaron's sons, why is it not good enough for you? Because I trust you were ordained in a Bible-believing church where they understood that the pictures of the Old Testament were fulfilled by Christ's work for his people. You see, turn across, please, Hebrews chapter 10. Because we should understand, and I said to you that we must understand this in light of our standing in Christ and in Hebrews particularly, the word sanctified is often used in some form of past tense as something that has already occurred. And so we, we will often advocate the need for progressing in our likeness to Christ, progressive sanctification. But here in Hebrews, it's often used in a form of a past tense. You, you take verse number 10, because flowing from Christ's work using the Psalm 40, indicating Christ's obedience to come and to die for sinners. And it says there, verse number 10, as Christ comes to do the will of God, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 14, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Now, if you read that and understand that's referring to your personal obedience, you're either going to fall into the trap of sinless perfection or you're going to fall into the trap of being greatly discouraged. Because what's involved here is not about your personal conduct, it is about your standing in Christ Jesus, that through his work you're set apart. You're, you're no longer dead in sin, you're alive in Christ. You're, you're no longer useless, you're useful. Because God has taken you from your sin and has used you greatly in the service of God. And this, by the way, does not just apply to gospel ministers. This is true for all of God's people in various categories, with various giftedness, but they're sanctified, they're set apart. They're Protestant saints. Properly understood, they are those who understand what it is to be holy ones unto God. And that's vital. And of course, it is from that that Paul can then say to Timothy, flee and follow. You see, we do not become sanctified by living a holy life. We live a holy life because we are sanctified. And if you get that order wrong and you teach your people that order wrongly, they are going to be in spiritual peril. You've got to get that clear. And so the imperatives of 2 Timothy 2, they follow out of the declaration of a sanctified man who's set apart for God's use. And so the duty comes out of the declaration. You are set apart, therefore be set apart. You are in Christ, therefore live as one in Christ. All of those things, be who you are, dear man of God. If you're a child of God, live as a child of God. If you're a saint, live as a saint. You don't become a saint by being a holy man. Rome got that so very, very badly wrong. And so we understand that, but we must apply it carefully in our own ministries. You see, it is clear, therefore, that God is pleased to use holy men. Holiness does matter. You see, as part of the process 
whereby God works in our hearts. He does make us like Christ. There's a definitive change in our lives. You see, God is pleased to use holy men. Holiness exemplifies the outcome of the message, doesn't it? His name is Jesus. He shall save his people from their sins. Even man of God, so-called, standing in the pulpit, wallowing in the pig swill of his sin, and he's saying, Christ will save you from your sins, the people are going, that doesn't make any sense. And so we understand the application here. It makes sense that the, the man of God is holy because it exemplifies the outcome of the message. Christ indeed came to purify unto himself a peculiar people. Titus chapter 2. We know that the purpose of Christ's coming was to save a people unto himself. Teaching us to deny. Remember what it says in Titus chapter 2? The gospel teaches us to deny sin and to put on Christ. I can, I can draw that passage to heart. Holiness exemplifies the outcome and it shows us the power of the message. You have people coming into your, your church and don't we pray for this? We pray for people coming and they're, they're trapped in all manner of sins. And, and they sit before you and you say to them, Christ can free you from the power of sin. You want to make sure you've known that personally in your own experience. You see, the holy God does indeed use holy men. That's the importance of holiness. Secondly, though, please note the imperatives of holiness. Matthew Henry says this, Those who teach by their doctrine must teach by their life, else they pull down with one hand what they build up with the other. There is the need, the imperatives here of holiness. Yes, I've said already, this flows out of who we are in Christ. But it does flow in certain imperatives. There are positives and negatives here. And I want to highlight just the three that are mentioned here. Forsake, flee, and follow. Very simple. Forsake refers to the need in verse number 21 to purge yourselves from these. Verse 21, if a man therefore purge himself from these, forsake. Forsake what? Forsake error and those who teach error. This text is advocating the biblical practice of separation. Note it says, verse 21, if a man therefore purge himself from these, it's our responsibility. It's our obligation. We must do it. And if we fail to do it, there's a problem with our usefulness. Separation is here being taught. Now let me show you this just by looking at the context. Look at verse number 19. Because sometimes people see 19 without getting it in the, in the flow of thought through the entire chapter. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seed, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now, of course, there is a very general application there that if we name the name of Christ, we should flee all manner of iniquity. But in the context, it is particularly emphasizing the need for the man of God to depart from iniquity of false teaching. That's the context. And I hope you understand that Paul in 2 Timothy 2.19 is drawing directly from number 16. What you have here is the Greek of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, being directly taken by Paul, and he's quoting Scripture here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. So please turn back to Numbers chapter 16, because I'm sure many of you are aware of this already, but let me remind you. You have in Numbers 16, the sin and the rebellion of Korah. Again, there were those, and they were saying, in essence, Moses and Aaron, you're not the Lord's. We're the Lord's. And so what happens? Well, Numbers 16, verse number 5, Moses speaks to Korah and all his company, saying, even tomorrow the Lord, listen to the language, the Lord will show who are his. 
And in the Greek translation, that's the words that Paul takes in 2 Timothy chapter 2. The Lord knows the false teacher, and the Lord knows those who are truly the men of God. And so you get on down to the end of the chapter, verse number 26. And he spake unto the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men. Again, the same language. Depart from iniquity. But the iniquity is the iniquity of those who set themselves against the Lord's truth. Of course, Paul gladly takes that in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And he says that everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. It is a call to separation. You see, a failure in separation has a direct bearing on true usefulness. Now, I understand that here, here I want to be careful. We must be careful that in our defense of the properness of separation, that we don't fall into the trap of some sort of hyper-isolationism. Or we become the only ones who believe that we're the only ones who have the truth, and everybody else around us, outside us, well, they're not, they're not faithful. We need to be very careful. Who is the Hymenaeus and the Philetus of today? You don't want to bring to the pulpit here and say, you're a Hymenaeus and you're a Philetus. Now, to do so without apostolic authority, we should do so with great care. And make sure we do so on the ground of their teaching and demonstrate their teaching as false in the things of God. I certainly have no difficulty in bringing a Roman Catholic priest to the pulpit and saying there's a false teacher. That's obvious, isn't it? Well, you would think so. It's maybe not as obvious as it used to be. Oh, sure, they have some things that are true in their ministries. Don't they talk about Jesus? Don't they believe in the Trinity? Don't they believe in some form of substitutionary atonement? Please, I'm not defending it. You know I'm not. I'm speaking in terms of, of how others may think, and some sadly do think. We can have no fellowship with Rome. And we must teach our people that and affirm that, and make sure within ourselves that we have no fellowship with Rome. It is not too old to reaffirm that in every generation. It's also the case that the liberal who denies miracles and denies the Bible, they are false teachers. They may find themselves within the church, in the broader church circle. They may be there, but they are not true, and they must be separated from. No fellowship with them. And if I can make it very simple, anybody else who sees the liberal or the Romanist as being a true Christian, we must sever from them also. Because they're clearly very deficient in their thinking in those areas. And so in many ways, it is pretty straightforward. We separate from all those who do not proclaim the fundamentals of the truth. But they're so nice and so sincere. I didn't meet Hyman S. personally, but I have no reason to doubt he was a nice, nice guy. You've got to be so careful. And it is your obligation. It is your obligation as a man of God to practice personal and ecclesiastical separation from these things. For sake. That perhaps is the easy one to preach in the ACCC. Flee youthful lusts. That's the second one, verse 22. In these imperatives of holiness, flee youthful lusts. The word lusts, very general, desires, passions, sometimes legitimate, but here, of course, sinful, sinful desires. The tendency in most readers, and even in commentators, is to look at this and suggest it must refer to sexual immorality. Isn't that the prevailing sin of youth? Well, I don't believe that is actually the primary focus. But I also do not want to avoid it. So let's be clear. When Paul refers to youthful lusts, he is referring to those things that may prevail in youth, but sins don't die due to age. 
And so it's very possible for an older man of God to be guilty of sinning in the area of youthful lusts. In my own Christian life, I was converted 30 plus years ago, my teenage years, and I'm aware of contact with very few churches, but I'm aware of two at least where the church was greatly damaged by a man no longer a youth in Timothy's days, a man in his late 40s to 50s destroying his ministry and his testimony by falling into sexual immorality. Do not be deceived. Do not think you stand and you cannot fall. Be aware and be vigilant and flee youthful lusts. But having said that, I'm not sure that's the primary focus here. Because when you look at this and you go on down, you see that in the language of the text here, Paul highlights things that are also true in youthful years. Things like pride and a pugnacious attitude to those with whom we differ. Those things certainly don't die with age. But they are particularly true in our youthful years. I remember coming into understanding of some doctrines in my, my late teens, and I would have fought with my shadow. I was right, they were all wrong, and it was a case of who's the next person to come along that I can fight with them. And I don't say that in any way to my pride. There was a pride, but there was an attitude that was not honoring unto God. Well, I believe, I still believe, I had the truth. You see, look back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Just to illustrate again here, I'm not, I'm not going to go on too far in this 1 Timothy 6 one, but you'll see in 1 Timothy 6, 11, there's a parallel here. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. And if you look back to the context, again, I'm not going to go through it now, you can do it later on, you will see that there's all manner of issues that he raises. There's pride, verse number 4. There's disputings. There's money. Discontentment. All of these things are in the preceding context to 1 Timothy 6, 11, flee these things. And so clearly Paul has a much broader idea of youthful lust than simply those matters of sexual immorality. And so you look at verse number 23 of chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, but foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach patient in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Now Paul is here not talking about someone who has fallen into a small error of some minor point of Christian doctrine or Bible interpretation. He's discussing those who are in the snare of the devil, who've been taken captive at his will, and even those are to be treated with gentleness and meekness. That is very, very sobering. And so if we are those who practice separation, we must forsake all manner of iniquity, but yet we must also oppose those with whom we differ with a spirit of gentleness and meekness. And those are not my words. It's very easy to bring favor amongst our brethren by being those who are pugnacious and contentious. Oh, look at the stand for truth that man takes. Oh, clearly he's, he's very strong in his separation principles, but really he's a unpleasant, contentious man striving in every format. Social media is the worst. A lack of gentleness and kindness and Christ-likeness in our ministry. We must contend for the truth that is so very, very clear. I'm not suggesting for a second that we are soft on truth. We must not compromise. I thank our brother for that text in Proverbs I've never seen it before. We must not compromise but we must not be contentious. We've got to be very careful in these things. Flee. Thirdly, follow. Here's the positive aspect of this. Follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Here's the positive. You forsake iniquity, you flee these lusts, and you follow these principles. Righteousness. I think what's involved here 
again, is discussing and describing our conduct, Paul doesn't only refer to righteousness as that alien righteousness that is given to us in Christ, and he does use it that way predominantly. But in Romans chapter 8, he refers to the righteousness of the law being fulfilled in us. Not Roman Catholic infusion, but the work of regeneration whereby we're so radically changed that God works his law in us. Jeremiah, a new covenant, the law written in our hearts. And so as those who have the law in our hearts, we then obey that law. I, I hope you men know the Ten Commandments and that you live them. And that you pursue obedience to them. Personal holiness matters. And so you must be clear that you have no other gods but the one God. You must be clear that you keep the Lord's day holy. That you honour family life. That you do avoid sexual immorality. But also you defend your marriage and your wife. You want to make sure that when you stand before your people you have not stolen from them. That you've given yourselves wholeheartedly in the ministry. That you're not someone taking a salary from the church, but not working for that salary. In the sense of not being industrious with the Lord's people and the Lord's money. You want to make sure that you're not the coddest person in the church. You're not the one that wants everything. And you certainly want to make sure that you're not the one who spreads the church gossip around the members of the church. The Ten Commandments matter. Pursue and follow righteousness. Love to our faith. Faith. That's the hard one. I think anyway. What do you mean by faith here? Is it dependence upon God? Yeah, that's good, isn't it? We've got to pursue dependence upon God, those who are men of prayer. But it also may be the case that he's defending the matter of reliability. It's required of stewards that they are faithful. And so it may well be the case here, he's encouraging the men of God to be men who are reliable. That when you say it, you'll do it. And you do it to the very best of your ability. Pursue faith, love, charity. It's there. Charity. Verse number 22. Love for God and man. That you are those who pursue a personal relationship with God. That you pursue love for God. That you pursue love for man. That you're those who exemplify in your congregation what it is to love the brethren. Peace. Again, I've said enough of this. I think the peace involved here is peace with others. We're to follow peace with all men. As much as in us lies, it's not possible sometimes. Immediately, names come to mind of people who you have not succeeded in pursuing peace with. I wish it wasn't the case, but it is the case. But I tried. And that's the point. We pursue peace. We're not deliberately seeking to become divisive. Uh, note just one comment on this and then we'll move on. Note that we do this in community. With them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Dear brethren, if you're to pursue these things, you will only do so in a vibrant church. With the company of God's people calling upon the Lord together. A church prayer meeting. A church that prays together, enabling the man of God to be a holy man. Useful. Meet for the master's use. That's the holy man of God. And I hope you have an understanding of the need for personal holiness flowing out of your standing in Christ Jesus. Secondly, though, the mighty work of God. The mighty work of God. It's also here because it's meet or useful for the master's use. Note the words that are used here. An awful weapon in the hand of God, says McShane. Meet for the master's use, prepared unto every good work. That's the connection. The master makes use of holy men by enabling them to do good works. That's the thought here. The Lord uses you by giving you the equipment to work good works in your ministries. I hear again the temptation is to run from Dan to Beersheba and dig out every single possible good work. So you could do this, you could do that, you could do the other thing. But again, in the context, we have a very strong clue as to what Paul means by every good works. And it's in the best known text, perhaps, of 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scripture, verse 16, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto 
all good works. And so I don't believe here that the good works referred to are referring to the works of Dorcas, who can make clothes and keep people warm. I don't even believe it's referring to the matter of feeding the needy. Oh, that's a good work. I believe for the man of God, the good works referred to here have the particular focus of you as a preacher of God's word. That is your good work. And that is why you're a vessel unto honor, meet for the master's use. That the good works are the works of teaching doctrine, of instructing the people, of reproving them for their sins, of putting them in the straight path, of instructing them in righteousness. That's the good works. See, often we take verse 16, and you look at verse 16, and you think to yourselves, Monday morning. Monday morning. And the way that you get the Bible out, and you begin to study, and you think, I must give myself to doctrine, and to reproof, and correction, and instruction, and righteousness, and the burden is so heavy. He is sufficient for these things. And you get that experience week upon week upon week. Let me encourage you to put a marginal note in your Bibles if you use a pencil in your Bible and put beside verse 16 of chapter 3 the words of chapter 2, verse number 21. That because of the Master, you are prepared for every good work. Not in your education, not in your personality, but in the mighty work of God's Spirit in your life, you are able to do every good work. You're able to use the Bible properly. Oh, not infallibly, but really and truly and usefully. You're useful in God's hands because God has prepared you for every good work, enabling you to handle the Word carefully and correctly. You see, every church needs an able minister, an able pastor, a saved man, a holy man of God, because a saved, holy man of God is useful in the Master's hands. And so the people, they need instruction, they need correction, they need reproof. They need those things. And God has provided for their needs by putting you into the ministry as a man of God. The Lord's people are blessed when the man of God executes these tasks in the proper use of the word. But you're a man of the word. You see, what does the word of God do in a community, in a congregation? Well, if I can go a little bit further in the wider parallels, the Word of God is used by God to convert sinners. Turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Just a few pages, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to draw upon Paul's own experience of what it was to be an awful weapon in God's hands. And the preacher brings the Word of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13 we thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God as sinners, ye heard it not as, or you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. You see, the man of God, in God's hands, a holy man, brings the word of God to sinners and in God's almighty power, they're converted by His grace, and they understand this is not man's word, it's God's word. Can you convince a sinner of that? Not a hope. You may use the cleverest arguments, the most intellectual defense of the gospel, and you should do so. But unless God opens the heart, they will never, ever believe your words. They will say, those are the words of a man and not the word of God. But when a holy man's used in God's hands, sinners are converted. That's the hope of the ministry. And the people of God are confirmed in their faith. That's Colossians chapter 1. Go back a bit further. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 28. What does the Word of God do? It converts sinners. It confirms the saints. Christ being preached here in Paul's ministry, whom we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect or complete in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor. It's hard work, this ministry, but listen, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. The man of God, a holy man of God, saved in Christ Jesus, pursuing personal godliness, 
but God is working in him. And he's able to confirm the saints, to build the saints up in their faith, that they are presented perfect in Christ Jesus. And thirdly and finally, contending. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Because it is important for the gospel minister to contend. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Again, the time is gone to deal with this, but you see what the issue is here. Verse number 4, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. You missed something there. No, I did deliberately miss something there, that you would see it clearly. Mighty through God. Don't miss the through God. Oh yeah, we have spiritual weapons. We have the word of God in prayer. We have these things. And in so doing, we can cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We can do these things in the ministry. And dear people, how many imaginations are rolling about in this world at this time that need cast down? How are we going to cast them down? Through God. As holy men of God who are awful weapons in the hand of God. Isn't it wonderful to be a gospel minister? Did you believe that yesterday? Will you believe it tomorrow? Only if you get to the understanding that you're in God's hand. And yes, you have responsibilities. But you're an awful weapon in the hand of God. And God is able to do his sovereign purpose in his will. That may not mean that you'll see big churches built, but you will have usefulness in the Lord's service according to his will. So be a holy man of God. I didn't know ladies were going to be here and young people here. Pray for your man of God. You want a man of God to minister to you. But you want a man of God ministering to you in God's hand. Praise God for his word to your hearts today. Let's all bow in a word of prayer. Eternal God and Father, we thank you again for your word inspired, inerrant, that word that speaks to our hearts, coming from God to our souls. Oh Lord, we pray that you would encourage our hearts. We need encouragement, Lord. Confess freely, O oh Lord, that in the ministry, the bouts of discouragement come regularly upon each and every man of God. So may we see what we are in Christ as believers, and then see what we are in Christ as those who've been called to the ministry. Oh Lord, use us in your service. Honor your Son through our lives and labors, and we will seek to give thee all the praise and all the glory, as we pray in Christ's precious name. Amen.